Wang to Horror Court Trash Over, the show that discusses all the masterpieces and the trash pieces of festive genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. We don't discuss festive genre cinema all year round, just like, it's just a special intro. Yeah. Well, it's always festive, isn't it? But this is specifically Christmas. It's festive. Christmas. And you know what? To start it off, We've been kind to both ourselves and you, because I know a lot of you guys are, ex- are excited to hear us discuss these three films, and we didn't have the worst time sitting through them. What a nice blend. Yeah. Three very different films. Yeah. It's when we did Halloween, and we did all the Halloween sequels, and they all kind of melded into one. At Apart from three. Yeah. Which we didn't. But they're all essentially the same kind of film. These three films feel so... And so different to the first two as well. Uh Uh-huh. That they could have been their own standalone films. Apart from three. Apart from three. Well, in fairness, if you were just... Change the name. Yeah. (laughs) If you just change the guy's name and his character um, and the whole of the film, (laughs) it would have been better... But you you could have made that scenario into something different. It wasn't Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yes, so of course we are talking the other Silent and Deadly Nights today. Three, four and five. Um, because these are the ones that get spoken about the least. Yeah. Uh, we've Of course we have covered parts one, two and a remake uh, previously. So if you'd like to listen to them, go to episodes 18 and 89. Uh, but yeah, we're finishing off the franchise today. Yeah, these aren't the most memorable ones. I mean, the first one is memorable because it was very controversial. It's the, for a lot of people, the original or the first one that they saw, Santa Claus is a serial killer yeah. films. Yeah. The second one, Garbage Day. <sighs> yeah, of course. You know, and then these three are kind of forgotten because they're straight to video uh, and they don't really bring anything massively new to the horror genre or to the trash to piece genre, I should no, I say. I rem- I watched these years ago, um, really grainy VHS versions, and I could barely see a fucking thing. And I, I wasn't the fan of most of them, the one that I remembered the most was Five, uh, and Five is the one I ended up enjoying the most. Uh, again this time around because it's uh, spoiler alert it's genuinely a good film which is surprising uh, with it's four point whatever on IMDb Um, but yes that's in the fives no it's in the fours oh I thought it was in the fives Um, but getting into it Silent Night Deadly Night 3 Better Watch Out my least favourite Christmas film with the title Better Watch Out Um, directed by Monty Howman who was uncredited on Roger Corman's The Terror, Beast from Haunted Cave, uh, Backdoor to Howl, The Shooting, Tulane Backtop, Cockfighter, China Nine, Liberty 37, Trapped Ashes, and he was executive producer on Reservoir Dogs and second unit director on Robocop. Yeah, Tulane Blacktop always comes uh, near the top of favourite court film lists. Yeah. Um, I was surprised Monty... He's not, he, he's not a huge director, but I was surprised that Monty Hellman was directing Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. <laughs> the worst film in the franchise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, Cockfighter has an, an audience um, that was very Excuse controversial. 
Um, I knew you would giggle at Cockfighter. Um, and then obviously worked with Roger Corman early on. Um, so not, not like a huge name, but I was surprised that he would direct this film. And yeah. So badly as well. Yeah, and, go, and going in this direction as well, it's this really strange choice. Um, the budget and uh, worldwide crosses are known. And for each of these films, I will be reading out the taglines because they are all amazing. This one is, When the Nightmare Ends, the Real Terror Begins. <laughs> okay. Right. Bullshit. Um, so, this film... Shouldn't this be called Previously on Twin Peaks? Previously on Twin Peaks. Oh, don't. Yeah. We'll get to that. Yeah. This film was largely rushed into production. The original script was discarded and rewritten in one week, starting in March 1989. Principal photography had finished by the end of April, editing was done in May, and the film was first screened at a film festival in July. Why? Why rush it? It's not like Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 was the biggest success, was it? Did it make me... It's so no. strange. So this... Was this not direct-to-video? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was? But it's premiere in a, a, film, a film festival. festival yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, oh, I this this would have been at Fright Fest if it was modern kind of day. The, yeah, so that kind of film festival, not, not like Cannes or anything like that. No, no, not quite. Dr. Newbury's assistant is played by Melissa Howman, the, the daughter of the director. Uh, she also reportedly assisted her father with the final draft of the script. Well, thanks for fucking it up for him, because <laughs> the script is fucking dire. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. Yeah, should be ashamed <laughs> Uh, the director attended a screening of the film in July 2008 at the Alamo Draft House in Austin, Texas, where he said he thought it was his best work, but not his best movie. Are you fucking kidding me? His best work, <laughs> but not his best movie. You were second unit director on Robocop. How the fuck is this your best work? Was he really? <laughs> yeah, that's what I just said, yeah. Oh, wow. And he was on... Um, oh, I totally he, ignored that. He was executive producer on Reservoir Dogs. Yes, he was. I do remember that. Like, that's crazy. And he thinks this is his best work. Yeah. And Too Late Blacktop. People love that. <laughs> I, I really... I mean, the thing is... The, the problem is, the first half of this film... Is great. It's it's so bad. It's good. You know, it looks like it's going in the same direction as part two. It's trash the piece. But then once it gets to that fucking second half, oh my god, it's so boring. So boring. And the problem is, I can see what the director was going for because it is a slow burn in that second half with a killer stalking a victim. Now that would have been great any other time, but the fact that we don't particularly like this lead character. And we don't give a shit what happens to her. Just makes it boring. Yeah. I just I can't think of any films that have successfully slow burnt uh, horror films have successfully slow burnt the second half. I understand when we, we get to know these characters. Mm. Um, can you think of a film that does that? I mean, you in Halloween we, you know. The whole Laurie Strode being chased and stalked thing at the end. If you didn't give a shit about Laurie Strode, I'm sure that would drag on. Yeah. This is this is my point, though. The fact that we don't really care about this character. So you think it feels longer yeah. because we don't. Like if if we care. liked her, if, yeah. if we liked her, she's quite unlikable. And if Bill Mosley actually oh wasn't laughable in this role, then you know maybe we would have actually felt something. Yeah. I think it's entirely down to performances and writing. Um, 
We'll get to that. The original screenplay was written by producer Arthur Gorson and S.J. Smith, and Monty Hellman disliked the screenplay. However, with Gorson's permission, hired um, he hired Rex Weiner to uh, write a completely new screenplay. This is further revisited by Hellman himself, his daughter Melissa Hellman and Stephen Gaydos. Jesus, the fucking names. Um, <laughs> the rejected script by Gorson and Smith would subsequently uh, form the basis of what would become part four. You really need to grow up. How <laughs> But yeah, that's a uh, respectable podcast. This and you're oh, we are n- nothing of the sort. Just absolute torture around Christmas time because every fucking song features gay apparel or having a gay time and whatnot, and you just it's sit empowering. It's, it's not funny. It's empowering. It's empowering. Yeah, <laughs> done that gay apparel. Um, yeah, so this is going to be part four. The storyline for part four. Okay, and they, they should have just skipped to that. <laughs> well, what was going to be part three? Nothing. Like, that was it. That was the end of Ricky's storyline. Part two is the end of the storyline, and this was just going to be a new start, like an anthology. Oh, I see. Ricky should never have had a storyline. Anyway. <laughs> hey, no, come on. It's a good thing he did. We'll never have part two. Okay. Um, we can't shit on part two. It's it's one of the three. The big three. The big three what? Troll 2, Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, The Room. Oh, okay. <laughs> They're the big three. The big three. Big four if you count Birdemic. Um, the scene with Ricky waking up and killing the hospital Santa was originally filmed with Richard C. Adams, who had played Santa in Laura's Dreams, um, playing the Santa who Ricky kills. But the director uh, thought the scene, uh, as originally filmed, came across overly mean-spirited, and on the last day of filming, reshot the scene with Halman himself now playing Santa whilst drinking and ad-libbing crude jokes to make his demise seem less cruel. Oh. Yeah, because Son a Dead Night film, like, the first film is massively mean-spirited. Oh, hugely. <laughs> it's a very dark film. Very. It really, genuinely <laughs> is, really. This Santa gets killed literally after showing clips from that film. Like some of the most mean spirited clips in that film. Yeah. <laughs> what What are you trying to achieve? Well, the deaf Santa getting killed. <laughs> Should have clipped from that, <laughs> didn't it? Um, yeah. Getting into the film, and also yeah, as as we mentioned, uh, we've got some Twin Peaks cast members to mention in this, and it's bizarre to me that a film with a slasher film with a psychic killer with a psychic connection. Played by Bill Moseley and with the cast of Twin Peaks, how it became so bad, I really don't know. Uh, yeah, this is the year before Twin Peaks, um, so maybe they didn't sprinkle that Twin Peaks magic. <laughs> and any, I don't fucking know. I don't know. Sometimes just shit films happen. Yeah. No matter who's in it, just shit happens. Well, the cover toast Ricky Caldwell, who you may recall. Was last seen with perfect eyebrows, a muscly body, and some of the best line delivery you'll ever hear. He reawakens and begins to stalk a blind woman with whom he shares a psychic connection. We get opening credits over blind clairvoyant girl Laura Anderson sleeping. She's woken up by someone saying her name and an annoying screeching sound on the soundtrack. This is fucking... This is the way you communicate with dogs. This is ridiculous. And we got a turn to you, didn't I? So what the fuck it, is this? It is genuinely one of those dog whistles, isn't it? It's, it's just... Brain splitting, yeah. Well, dog whistles you can't even hear. Imagine if you could hear it. 
they literally bla- uh, brain splitting <laughs> and, and like an alarm sound. That was awful. Truly awful. <laughs> she approaches the infamous Santa Claus killer Richard Ricky Coldwell, now skinnier with terrible eyebrows and played by Bill Moseley. I mean, seriously, how did they think he even looked like him? And what's weird is, I seem to remember when I first watched this, I swear there was clips from the second film in this as flashbacks. Oh. Um, so I don't know if they've just got rid of them because I mean it looks fucking ridiculous. Well, they, I suppose you and... wouldn't because that that isn't what he looks like. It's yeah, completely exactly. different. Um, I'm gonna say it now. Bill Mosley, how ridiculously badly poorly cast. I know. He? Yeah. I mean, Bill Mosley, <laughs> famous at the time for Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two, yeah. where he played a very over the top, um, very verbal character, mm-hmm. very silly character and he is very good in that role he's made a career out of those sort Mm -hmm. of horror film roles you know i think personally he could do freddy krueger justice yeah you know uh, freddy krueger sequel freddy krueger um complete mute in this film yeah complete mute just didn't do anything absolutely ridiculous just absolutely totally miscast yeah it's ridiculous and and you can see he's actually trying yeah which is what's worse it's just actually it, it is what makes the performance worse because you see he really is really going for it yeah because he looks so stupid though and he's in such a stupid role it doesn't work i assume he didn't want to be completely typecast but it's a complete 180 from <laughs> what he was doing previously, and it do, it really doesn't work. Although I'm not sure if anyone could make this work when no. you've got a fucking half a C for a UFO on your fucking head. <laughs> um, he's, been, he's been left comatose for six years after he was shot down by the police at the end of the second film. Is this six years after? Yeah. Oh. Um, he now has a transparent dome being affixed to his head by the doctors in order to repair his damaged skull. Yeah. Why? Mum's old fucking mixing bowl. <laughs> like, the thing is, he, they, later on in this film, like, oh, no one deserves to die. Yes, he deserves to die. He murdered a bunch of people. Yeah. Like, he literally went on a massacre. He got shot by the police. Leave him dead. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Ricky gets out of bed with a scalpel and slowly walks after Laura as she runs away. He eventually catches up with her and slits her wrist, but she continues to run away and eventually finds him in a room covered in blood. But in a bizarre series of events, Santa Claus invites her to follow him down a hallway where he's got a grotto set up. <laughs> she sits on his lap and tells him she wants a Barbie doll and a bicycle and roller skates and ballet shoes and a Mickey Mouse watch. And Santa's just like, this bitch, I ain't got that much fucking time on my hands. Know, yeah. So, uh... She's way too... She's old, too old to be on his lap, for one. <laughs> and too old, you know, she's about there making her own fucking money for all this. Yeah, he's like, off you fuck, and uh, stabs her. She wakes up screaming. She does. <laughs> um, yeah, that was a dream sequence. Uh, one of many. What a way to open the film. You know, very, very promising. You think it's going to be, uh... Fun, at least. Yeah, well, she wakes up and she's questioned about her dream. She says, what's it? So what was your dream about? It was a dream about Christmas. Obviously, as today is Christmas Eve. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Just because we didn't know, you know, that no, exposition's coming through. As today is Christmas Eve. Um, yeah, and uh, her doctor is Benjamin Horn from Twin Peaks. Yes. Dr. Newberry. 
um, from West Side Story yeah. as well. So it, mm, it must have been struggling a little bit. It must have been. Um, yeah, wanting to contact Ricky, uh, Dr. Newberry begins using Laura to try to reach out to him. So, she, yes, she says about it being Christmas Eve and that she saw Santa Claus in her dream. And Dr. Newberry thinks she made contact with Ricky, but he's not sure. But surely he knows Ricky's history. This guy fucking talks shit. He, he talks absolute shit for every second of his screen time. And it genuinely, the whole time, it looks like he doesn't know what's going on or he doesn't remember his lines. Yeah. Like, it, his performance is awful. Bless him. He's, he, I think he knows that the uh, film's beneath him. <laughs> She's doing it for the money. Laura goes back to sleep and dreams up flashbacks of Santa approaching the car in the first film. Yeah, they say, oh, we're going to put you back to sleep now. And she's just lying <laughs> there. Just slips. Oh. <laughs> oh. I'm like, bitch, I wish I could go to sleep that quickly. <laughs> and when she wakes up this time, um, <laughs> Dr. Newbury says, subject may be making contact. Can't be certain. I think she's messing with me. <laughs> I wonder if she's playing games. <laughs> What for? What for? That's never why? explained why she'd be playing games. Because she's a fucking bitch. She's she a horrible is, she's character. She's actually horrible. <laughs> Laura goes back to sleep and dreams up more flashbacks, this oh, time no. of Santa killing Ricky's parents in the first film. Yes. Uh, whilst Billy watches. That poor actress that played Billy's mum in the first film. Like, every single film, like, constantly her bloody top being ripped open... The fucking focal point of all these... I know, of all the flashbacks. It's like, seriously? Yes. Um, yeah. All she can tell Dr. Newberry is that she keeps seeing a scary Santa. Laura begins to regret her participation in his experiment, but Newberry tries to convince her to keep trying, saying that they could talk more after Laura returns home from a visiting her grandmother in Pyro. Peru? Peru over the holidays. So, <laughs> Newberry's like, you're going to Peru? Like, he's so shocked. He's absolutely horrified at the fact she's going to Peru. And she's like, no, Peru. <laughs> she clearly said Peru in the she first place. She clearly said Peru, which is a place in California. <laughs> um, Dr. Newberry's also a real creep. Um, he's When he's talking to his little cassette player, he does say the... The phrase is, she wants to penetrate his Oh, mind. I've got that here. I've See what here. he sees. She'll let me go as deep as I want. <laughs> yeah, he's fuming. Um, I'm sorry, does it only count if it's from your mouth? No, no, I've got like line for line. <laughs> well, I mean, you've pretty much said it all, yeah. That's, um, he does say all of that. And he, he thinks that she's playing little girl games. He's like, her body might be young, but her mind is very old. <laughs> And is then this, it? for some reason, this causes Coma Ricky to start crying. <laughs> she's incredibly immature. I don't think she has an old mind. No. She's an absolute child. Why the fuck does this start, make Ricky start crying? <laughs> I, I have no idea. <laughs> Just has like a single tear. It's like Lisa Rinna with the teddy bear. Oh, shit. He has like a single tear single come from tear. his eyes. <laughs> I brought the bunny. So, uh... <laughs> Laura goes to reception and comes face to face with a character that's even more bitchy than she is. I know, right? And she's like, my brother's coming to pick me up. Can you let me know when he's here? And the receptionist's like, I'm very busy here, miss. She's like, well, when you see a red jeep, can you let me know? She's like, I'll do my best. Like, 
bitch. <laughs> the receptionist is like, excuse me? <laughs> I mean, it is quite rude. I mean, she, she doesn't actually move from the reception desk. So she just needs to wait for a guy to come in. and. But then, surely if... Surely if Laura's going to be waiting in reception and he's coming to reception, he's going to see Laura straight away and yeah. go to her rather than go to the desk. Like, Laura's not going anywhere. No. So really, she is kind of wasting the receptionist's time. Also, um, just to remind you again, this character is blind because it, there's a few times you'll hear her say, she saw this, she saw that. No, we're not kidding. She genuinely sees things. Yeah. Despite being blind. So she has visions like her dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it's hard to tell what is a dream and what's not. It's it's a terrible blind performance. Well, she's just going to constantly be falling asleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, she has a sleeping reception. She does. <laughs> and she dreams of the receptionist being murdered. <laughs> She does, yeah. She has a throat slit. Yeah. Um, I, I put here, sleepiest woman ever. <laughs> she's constantly nodding off. Yeah, and then when, she, when her brother turns up to pick her up, she leaves. Uh, the receptionist is like, is she alright? Merry Christmas. And she turns to the receptionist and she says, Not for you. <laughs> Which is really quite cunty, isn't it? Because she's... I mean, if she thinks that her dream or vision or whatever means she can gaze into the future. Just like Raven. You think life would be a breeze? <laughs> uh, no. So she says not for you because she knows that the receptionist is about die. to be murdered. Yeah. I'm like, you're not going to do anything about that? You're just saying not for you. Bye, bitch. <laughs> like, are you serious? That's really... She's actually a horrible person. <laughs> or just, just because the receptionist wouldn't tell her when a yeah. brother arrived. And he just goes straight to her anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so the older brother is played by the actor Eric DeRay. Yeah, Leo from Twin Peaks. Leo from Twin Peaks. You wouldn't recognise him. You wouldn't, actually. There's part of him that's very different. Yes. Uh, in this film, he's sporting some Def Leppard, Bon Jovi giant, curly, kind of golden brown hair. Yeah, and the fashion to go with it. And the double denim to go with it. <laughs> um, yeah, he's given us pure Billy Ray Cyrus tribute act. Yeah, yeah he, picks, uh, he picks, Chris, his name is, he picks Laura up from the hospital, um, whilst a drunk hospital employee dressed as Santa Claus wanders into Ricky's room and begins taunting him. Um, which brings Ricky back to consciousness. He says, hey, Ricky, want a drink? What's that? Vegetables don't drink. More for me. Cheers. Hey, Vegetable, who's your favourite singer? Perry Coma. And then he starts singing Fly Me to the Moon and says, ho, ho, ho. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um... Yeah, is this the scene they wanted to lighten? Yeah. By making all the jokes? Yeah, about, about being a vegetable and being in a yeah. coma. Lovely. Um, killing the Santa impersonator, Ricky escapes from the hospital, taking a letter opener with him, after also killing a receptionist. In exactly the way that Laura... Predicted it. Predicted it. Yes. Um, picked up from a boring session with a psychiatrist... 
uh, where they discuss the bitch on reception at the hospital, animal instincts, and Laura not having to be the champion blind girl. Laura is introduced to, by her brother to his new girlfriend. Was um, she a champion blind orphan? <laughs> champion blind orphan. Also, she sees him as, as Ricky, um, and the scene just ends, and that's it. Like, after yeah. that, she's fine. Like, what, what was that? What, what's going on? Yeah, the, the, nothing comes <laughs> back about the psychiatrist. It, it's such a pointless scene. Um, yeah, and Chris's new girlfriend, Jerry, who's a flight attendant... Um, Played by Laura Herring from Mulholland Drive. Yeah. So another David Lynch connection. Um, yeah, do you know how David Lynch casts his, uh, his characters? He watched this. Well, no, apparently he sits in a room with a bunch of pictures, meditates, and then it happens into Silent Oh, wow. <laughs> so do you think you just had a copy of Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 with him? <laughs> just pick random names off the cast list. I mean... <laughs> I mean, it hasn't seen him wrong no, so far. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Jerry, um, Laura fucking hates her. So she. Yeah, Laura's an arsehole from the get go. <laughs> she says, Chris tells me you're a psychic. <laughs> and Laura's like, Chris tells me you give good head. Like, Whoa, hang on a minute. Which was very. You got a little confused. Yes, yeah, they look the exact same. Jerry and Laura, they look exactly the same. They look very, like twins. very similar. Um, so you thought that Jerry had suggested that Laura gave good head to her brother. Um, I mean, it's still weird. It's, it's still, still weird if her weird. brother has been telling her that. No, that's her being a bitchy. They might have a weird relationship. You never know. As the trio head off to Granny's, uh, they felt... Oh, yeah, and also her name is Granny. She's not known yeah, by anything Granny, else. Granny, giving Red Riding Hood realness. <laughs> they head off to Granny's uh, and they failed to notice Ricky who can hear Laura, thanks to the mental link formed between them, yeah. following them. Um, they're too busy having awkward conversations in the car. Yeah, including Jerry asking Laura, tell me, how long have you been handicapped? <laughs> <laughs> That's not a question to ask someone you've just met. Yeah, Chris is like, uh, you know, let's uh, change the subject. Anyway... Laura falls asleep to absolutely no one's surprise. Oh my god, if you took a drink every time she falls asleep in this film, you'd be fucking plastered. You'd fall asleep. Yeah. She dreams of the scene from the first film where Father O'Brien is shot instead of Billy. And she wakes up and she's like, Ricky! Ricky! <laughs> Ricky! They think it's her new boyfriend. <laughs> in the best. And, and nothing, so she doesn't explain who Ricky no. is. No, she doesn't. There's no explanation. So she wakes up, she's like, <laughs> And they're like, oh, is that your new boyfriend? And, and that's it. Yeah, and it's a good while before she explains exactly. what's going on. Yeah. In the best scene of the film, Ricky hitchhikes. <laughs> and it looks hilarious. It will, it's, yeah. Yeah, it'll be on our social media this week. I sent you a gift, didn't I? Um... Yeah, so he hitchhikes and gets a lift from a guy who hates Christmas and gives him a Christmas jumper, which, of course, triggers him. So he murders the driver and throws him out. Now, it's not Christmas that triggers him. It's the colour Colour red, red. yeah. Which is ridiculous. (laughs) Ricky goes to get some fuel uh, and interrupts the gas station attendant who's watching the terror and about to talk dirty on the phone with someone. So he makes the mistake of wearing a Santa hat to greet Ricky and gets killed. But 
is uh, Fancy Lady still on the phone, isn't she? She certainly is. <laughs> and she says, are you there? I want to talk dirty to you. Greg? Okay, listen, I know you're there. I'm thinking about you. My panties are getting wet just waiting for you. Oh, Greg. (laughs) Some of the best dialogue in this film. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Do you think it was Babe Station on the phone? Do you think it's got like a subscription? Well, when I went to Amsterdam, I went to the sex museum and there was a sex line there, like a demonstration. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much what it sounded like, <laughs> to be fair. So, yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> we then introduced to Psychic Granny. <laughs> yeah, so this isn't dealt with any further. <laughs> uh, but Granny's just fannying around. And uh, she stops and says, phone is going to ring. <laughs> and guess what? The phone rings. Come on, Psychic Granny. Yes, we know you're psychic. But introducing this just makes... Everything else that's about to happen so dumb. It makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, so she gets a call from Chris and she asks him to get a couple of sticks of butter for her. Um, yeah, the gas station's uh, attendant's head has been left next to the phone. Is she still carrying on? She's still on the phone. (laughs) So he's been decapitated and his head has been left behind. Um, at the hospital, the two staff members butchered by Ricky are found by Lieutenant Connolly. And Newbury, who begin to track Ricky down, realising he is drawn towards Laura after surveillance camera footage shows him uttering her name. Okay, so they watch this camera, CCTV. (laughs) I've never known CCTV to have sound before, particularly in 1989. No. So I've never known that to happen. But Ricky walks close to the CCTV and says, Laura, plain (laughs) as day. Very clear, Laura. Yeah? Yeah. So the detective says, did you catch that? Rewinds <laughs> it, plays it again to him very clearly saying, Laura. <laughs> oh, Laura. <laughs> he must be psychically linked to her. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> they also discuss how they reconstructed Ricky's brain because even his life was of value. No, it fucking wasn't. Newbury also openly admits to Lieutenant Connolly that they've been experimenting on coma patients to see if they can make psychic connections. Like, hang on a minute. This is the moment when Lieutenant Connolly should be like, okay, no, you're under arrest, you fucking weirdo. Yeah. What are you doing? To do that. <laughs> um, and yet, just saving his life makes no sense. Um, He's a well, serial killer. For experiments, though, isn't it? It's, um... You know, all these mad scientists. Oh, I'll save him for my experiment. <laughs> well, maybe if the performance was a little more convincing. Yeah, he doesn't across. give off mad... Uh, the problem is he's just Ben... Benjamin Horn, isn't he? Yeah. That's what I remember. Businessman. Because he kind of... He looks the same. And, like, yes, yeah. is the same as well. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, Ricky makes it to Granny's first. Believing Ricky is simply an unfortunate handicapped vagrant, Granny tries befriending him but is killed when Ricky is provoked at the sight of a random Christmas gift she offers him. Somehow, the woman who knows when the phone's about to ring didn't see this coming. Yeah. Number one, how can Granny have a spare random gift wrapped under the tree? <laughs> um, it was clearly meant for someone else. Yeah. So whose gift did she give away? Yeah. Um, I hope she got it right. Well, I suppose it doesn't really matter now because she's murdered. Um, 
And Vicky ain't going to open the gift, but... No, I mean, she reads the tag, and she's like, oh, Santa left this for you. Well, no, he clearly didn't, because it's under your fucking tree. It, maybe it was for her, maybe a gift she'd bought herself. Like... A... Fancy underwear? Yeah, like edible <laughs> knickers or something. <laughs> um, yeah, the whole... The, the, the entire thing that she does not... She's psychic, top psychic, she knows when the phone's going to ring... The fact but that how she, was she talk- the only thing that shows that she's a top sidekick <laughs> was that one moment where she's like, phone's about to ring. <laughs> but that shows she's a sidekick. You, but the, the characters don't mention, oh, Granny, she's sidekick <laughs> as well. It's never mentioned apart from her, like, phone's about to ring. Exactly. That scene should never have been included. No. Because then it just raises the question, you've got a serial killer at your door. I mean, first of all, do you not recognise him from, like, the newspapers and stuff? You know, you can actually uh, see. You're very not... different then, though. But he still, had different eyebrows. He was muscly. And also, she should have just picked it up. She's psychic. She should have just been like, oh yeah, no, you're not coming in this house, you fucking weirdo. Yeah. Like he has a psychic connection with her granddaughter. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's fucking dumb. And uh, the rest of them reach Granny's house uh, after listen after uh, some terrible carol singing in the car from Chris and Jerry. Yeah, that lasts about 20 seconds. <laughs> like, you've gone all this way, and you wait until the last 20 seconds before you're about to pull up at the house to start singing a shit version <laughs> of We Wish You a Merry Christmas, which Jerry completely <laughs> fucks up. She fucks it up from the start. Absolutely ridiculous. How can she not know We Wish You a Merry Christmas? Yeah, Laura doesn't join in, and she feels something is wrong. Her suspicions are ignored by Chris, who just wants to fuck Jerry and believes Granny may have simply gone off for a walk. And he requests that Laura doesn't go all Twilight Zone on him. Yeah, Chris is a bit of a prick as well, actually. He's had it related. Um, He was on the phone to Grandma and she said, oh, I didn't really want to go out walking to get the butter. Can you bring some with you? Number one, he forgets the butter. <laughs> and number two, he completely forgets that conversation where she said she didn't want to go outside. <laughs> and he's like, oh, she must be going for a walk. I'm like, no, she wouldn't. You're an idiot. You're a twat. Yeah, Laura is fuming that he won't listen to her. Exactly. And she I notices well. that a chair is in the wrong place. Yes. <laughs> Laura can see Granny um, all of a sudden. And gets excited, but gets no response when she reaches out to her. Yeah, this is one of those weird, like, are you dreaming? Um, or is this, like, um, what do you call it? A vision mm-hmm. of sorts. Uh, so you don't know if she's nodded off again, because she, all she does is fucking sleep. Um, I don't know how long is she... <laughs> Here's me asking the question now. How long has she been blind for? <laughs> Because she wouldn't really know what Granny looked like. No. I mean, Granny's in exactly the outfit that she was murdered in. <laughs> so, who knows? But yet again, top psychic Laura, you know, everyone's favourite psychic, doesn't know that Granny's been murdered. Doesn't know that Ricky is luring around the house. Well, she, doesn't, she, she only has a connection. See, this is where I don't understand the clairvoyant. It's, it's it very selective. Um, I mean, as far as I know, she just has a connection with Ricky, uh, but only actually looks at Ricky's past, mm. but then could see that the, the receptionist, receptionist yeah. was going to get killed. And that is what we call 
bad writing. The, the gas station. How does she not know the guy's head had been chopped off? Exactly. So, yeah, she soon forgets about it anyway, and she's like, it's happy hour! And they start pouring drinks. It does, yes. Chris and Jerry have a bath together in what is a pointless scene just to give us some nudity. Yeah, uh, really creepy. <laughs> um, I would never in a million years get freaky in my grandmother's bath. <laughs> Ever. It's weird. Yeah, they, they pick some weird places to have sex in these films. Well, this one and five. The thing is, you, you, you're going to see Granny. She should be there. And she isn't. Yeah. You think she's gone for a walk. Even if you think she's gone for a walk, you know, she could be back at any moment. Mm-hmm. You know, she's gone for a walk, it's cold, she's going to need a piss. <laughs> so what do you decide to do? Share a fucking bath with your girlfriend. <laughs> like a fucking creep or something. Nobody even fucking unpacked. Like, the first thing they do is Weirdos. get a bath. Like, is that the only reason they went there? <laughs> but the problem, poor granny, she hasn't even got a shower. No! It's just the bath. So they're getting it on in the bath and Granny's going to be using that afterwards. <laughs> nah, that's creepy. I'd never do that to my grandma. Yeah, this is the point, by the way, where the film just becomes absolutely fucking boring. Like an absolute pain to sit for. Which I'm sure you're shocked by because we haven't made the first half that exciting. <laughs> Yeah, Chris and Jerry decide to go out and look for Granny whilst blind Laura watches a colourised version of the terror. Absolutely uh, <laughs> ridiculous. Come on, public domain TV. Well, he fucking directed it and credited. Yeah, but it's public do- I'm sure it was public domain. Uh, it's a but, cl- but why would you have a black and white version? I know, yeah. And then she's, she's w- watching... To make it look like a different film. A colour version to make so it look lazy. like a different film. Um, Connolly and Newbury talk absolute shit whilst driving. I haven't even got any of it down. They're just talking shit. Yeah, I completely missed that off. Chris is back at the house for some reason. Him and Laura talk absolute shit. Uh, and eventually decide to give Granny another 15 minutes before going to look for her. No, she's been gone since you fucking got there. Exactly. This is an elderly woman. You just cannot be asked whatsoever. Exactly. Jerry tells Chris his car has been moved. And they decide to go looking for Granny again. As she sits alone, Laura senses Ricky staring at her through the window. And she screams, bringing Chris and Jerry back to the house. And they reveal that they found the car upside down. We don't get to see this, sadly. No. But how the fuck did Ricky flip their car? Ricky in part two couldn't have flipped their car. I know. Let alone Ricky in part three. I know. Yeah, super strength, Ricky. Apparently. Um, I mean, yeah, he's about to demonstrate that, actually. After discovering the phone is dead and her picture is missing, Laura realises it must be Ricky who is after her. So she starts telling Chris and Jerry about how she says psychic connections with him. And they're obviously like, oh, get the fuck out of here. What the fuck are you talking about? Ricky then punches through the door, begins strangling Jerry. Yes. Uh, She's saved and Chris stabs Ricky in the arm, but he's still coming through. He's, he's still punching through that door. In between this, Dr. Newbury has a really weird moment at the gas station where he's talking directly to Ricky. <laughs> Did you get no. that? No. It's just, it's so fucking stupid. <laughs> like, he's there and he's staring just off camera. And um, he's like, oh, Ricky, if you can hear me. <laughs> oh, Ricky, you're so fucking. Oh, you're so Ricky, yes. <laughs> 
sound like you're about to say. It's just, I didn't get down what he said because it was absolute bollocks. <laughs> fucking ridiculous. Do you think he was just singing Mickey to him, like, with the lyrics spot to Ricky? Um, maybe, maybe. Elsewhere, when Connolly uh, leaves the car to urinate after he says, Speaking of snakes, excuse me. <laughs> Newberry drives off, uh, intending to try and reason with or trap Ricky, not wanting his experiment to go to waste by having Connolly kill him. Yes. Armed with an old shotgun, Chris, Laura and Jerry go out in search of aid, but are ambushed by Ricky who stabs Chris in the chest. Yeah, just just before that, I just wanted to note that uh, Laura kept saying he can't be stopped. He's going to kill us all. He can't be stopped. He can't be stopped. He's going to kill us all with as much emotion as a shepherd's pie. Well, yeah, that's when he's punching through the door. He's just sat there unbothered, like yeah. he's going to kill everyone. <laughs> Even the other two don't show that emotion. No. No, the, the cast is collectively just fucking awful. They are really bad. Which is so weird, because later on, they show some real fucking talent. Yeah. Not in this film. Not in this film. Oh, no, excuse me. I mean, when David Lynch gets hold of them. Whilst Laura and Jerry uh, run back to the house, Newbury finds Ricky. At first, Ricky isn't interested in what he's got to say, but is drawn close when Newbury plays a tape of one of his and Laura's sessions. As Ricky reaches out to him, Newberry, believing the tape had some kind of calming effect, grabs Ricky's hand, only to be stabbed in the stomach. Honestly, Newberry's a fucking moron. Why would he think that would work? Doesn't something red fall out of his hand? Is that what... Or am I thinking of something else? No, no. Oh, he's just an idiot then. At the house, Laura and Jerry barricade the door, but Ricky still manages to break in because he's super strength. Whilst looking for a gun, Jerry is killed by Ricky, and her body is found seconds later by Laura. Ricky approaches, allowing Laura to touch his face. Enraged when Laura flees in terror after feeling his artificial skull cap, Ricky chases after her. This cover's so fucking so long. long. Um, and not a single paddle to the vagina. It's, no, this is actually... This is exactly like fucking Rob Zombie's Halloween, that scene at the end where they're just chasing each other for ages. Yeah, when it should be more like Friday the 13th. <laughs> um, in the basement, uh, Laura is encouraged by a vision of Granny, whose body she finds hanging from the ceiling before knocking the light out. You've got to go. Go get it. <laughs> Laura is easily... <laughs> Laura is easily... You've got this, Laura. You go, girl. Go on, sis. you got this. <laughs> Laura is easily knocked aside trying to attack Ricky. Maybe she ain't got this. <laughs> As Ricky begins choking her, Laurie is... Look, Laurie... Oh, no, sorry, wrong film. Laura is saved when Chris appears and shoots Ricky with a shotgun after saying, Hey, Bobblehead, is it live or is it Memorex? <laughs> what does that even I mean? I have no idea what Memorex is a fucking cassette tape. Like... No idea. <laughs> Unfortunately, the shotgun is loaded with blanks and the unarmed Ricky uh, snatches it from Chris and uses it to choke him into unconsciousness. Ricky then moves in to finish off Laura, but she grabs a piece of a broken stick and holds it in front of her the last second and Ricky impales himself. Yeah. Reaching, reaching the house with backup, Connolly finds a dying Newbury before discovering Laura cradling her brother's body in the house. 
for some reason, Connolly says to Newbury, give me a call sometime, Doc. And Newbury, lying on the ground with his guts hanging out, is like, Lieutenant, don't be stupid. How are you still alive? Yeah. Your guts are outside of your fucking body. What's that even mean? Don't be stupid. You're the stupid one, you prick. For one last bizarre series of events, driven away by Connolly as the body of a survivor is rushed to the hospital by paramedics, Laura wishes the lieutenant a Merry Christmas before having a vision of Ricky in a tuxedo breaking the fourth wall and saying, and a happy new year. (laughs) That's the first time he talks. It's so... No, he says Laura, doesn't he? Oh, God, yeah. So fucking dumb. Yeah, so he does fucking talk. Yeah. Kind of. Just says one word. Yeah. So, so bad. Easily the worst one in the franchise. It's it's really bad. It's actually worse than the second one. Yeah. Which is notoriously bad. Yeah, the second one's fun to sit through. This is not. This is boring. It's really badly made. I, I was surprised that I hated this so much. Um, considering the talent that was involved, yeah. it's weird. Yeah, Bill Mosley can usually at least be the best thing about exactly. what he's in, but no, no. No, this was not the one. It's not the one. Um, some specific uh, awards we've got to give out for these films. Most festive moment. Santa's Grotto Dream sequence. I suppose it would have to be, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's... Uh, I mean, the most festive thing that happens in the film. <laughs> well, really, yeah. At the most rest of it didn't have to happen. In fairness, a lot of these, a lot apart from the first one, the others didn't necessarily have. To I don't know. Like, part five is very. Yeah, I suppose part five. That is very true. That is very true. But we'll get to that. Most laughable moment is uh, obviously Ricky hitchhiking. Ricky, um, some of the best imagery in the film. Ricky hitchhiking. Just. You know, Bill Mosley looking like a fucking idiot just doing that. It's it's great. It's great. And the best kill has got to be the horny gas station attendant. Yes. Even though it happens off screen, it's the imagery we get afterwards that is uh, totally worth it. Exactly. Exactly. But that's Silent Night Deadly... We agree on that one. Yes. Silent Night Deadly Night 3. And now it's on to Silent Night Deadly Night 4, Initiation, released in 1990... Um, yeah, you know what's crazy is the fact that these were all released within three years. Yeah, they just threw them out there, didn't they? Uh, directed by Brian Yusner, who is a horror legend. Yeah. Uh, directed Society, Bride of Reanimator, Beyond Reanimator, uh, Return of the Living Dead 3, The Dentist 1 and 2, Rottweiler, uh, Amphibious 3D, Tarzan the Epic Adventures, etc, etc. Yeah, well known within the horror community. Yeah. yeah. Horror community. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, yes, society is fantastic. And as is Bride of Reanimator and uh, Return of the Living Dead 3. So he knows his shit and it definitely shows. Uh, budget, uh, again, you know, Will Gross unknown. Uh, I guess straight to video. And the tagline is, and if I die before I wake, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't think that uh, means much in the context no. of the film, but I quite like that. 
Uh, getting into the trivia, this marks the first time in the series that doesn't involve a killer Santa. Yeah, so this does the whole Halloween free thing. Yeah, no, it does actually. Yeah, completely, completely different. It turns it into an anthology franchise, which, as I said earlier, should have been done with part three. That's that storyline came to an end in part two. That's why it should have been left. Yeah, it is weird though because this film has fuck all to do with Christmas. Yes, yeah. and Silent Night, Deadly Night is would. If it would have happened, an anthology series based around Christmas. Yeah. Which I think would have worked. This is absolutely fuck all to do with Christmas. Yeah. Uh, Even Halloween 3 was about Halloween. Yeah, this is literally just set at Christmas. Yes, that's it. You see a few trees. This marks the first of two times that Clint Howard plays a character named Ricky. Yeah, Clint Howard's in this. Yes. Previous star of the podcast. Uh, He's the only actor to play him more than once, not counting archive footage. It is unclear if he is playing the same character from the first two films. Come on. It's highly unlikely. <coughs> Come on. Really unlikely. I hope he is. That would make this so much better. Yeah. Um, but... but <laughs> especially with part five. His, his appearance in that. Yeah. yeah but it just means he's like immortal. He just... And it, it, it would, I mean, I'd have rather have seen Clint Howard doing part three. That I think that would have been so funny. Imagine if he's in part two doing garbage, though. Garbage, though. Screenwriter Zef E. Daniel incorporated several ideas and scenarios that he had originally envisioned for his previous film, Society, um, but had been unable to fit them into the storyline. This film's US release would predate that of Society by nearly two years. Yeah. Um, yeah, very body horror. Yeah, yeah. in keeping with Society. The basis of the film's script was originally meant for the third Silent Night, Deadly Night, but of course ended up being used here, which is trivia from the third film. Um, yeah, so we, we do have something very different here, and it's probably best we just get into it, because yes. it is a very bizarre series of events. A reporter investigating the bizarre death of a woman who leaps from a building in flames finds herself mixed up in a court of witches who are making her part of the sacrificial ceremony during the Christmas season. Yeah, so just during the Christmas season. Yeah, that's only when it takes place, so there yeah. we go, that's how it's Christmassy. <laughs> that's um, how it's Silent Night, Deadly Night 4. <laughs> waste no time getting straight into it, because the first thing we see is fucking Clint Howard as homeless man Ricky. Immediately, um, straight away, he finds a burger and moans that there's no cheese. Exactly. I know how he feels. <laughs> <laughs> I had a burger today, Tim Hortons, meant to have chicken in, no chicken. So this really spoke to me, this scene. Yes. I... Can I just say, poor Clint Howard. I know he's made a really good living <laughs> out of playing these weirdo characters. But do you think he, his agent calls him and says, Clint, I've got a great script for <laughs> you. He's like, oh, finally, I could be the romantic lead. Now you're the weirdo. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is why people love Clint Howard. He would never play anyone different. Um, maybe Rock and Roll High School is slightly different. He was a geek. Was he? I thought he was a principal. The principal was a woman. Really? He was the geeky one that um, always grasped people up. Oh, of course he was. Yeah, never mind. Yeah, but no, for once, poor Clint Howard. It, it, he's been in many films, and I have, obviously haven't watched all of them. 
Um, I'm getting there. But if he plays a romantic lead in any film, please let me know, because <laughs> I'd love to watch it. Bless him. He witnesses a woman on fire being pushed off a building. Yeah. Well, at that point, Certainly I not this film. Being pushed off. She jumped off a building. Um, and then we get Hitchcock-style opening credits... Already with a better score than the last film. Oh my god, this trying so hard to be um, Saul Bass. <laughs> trying so hard to be Vertigo. I have to say, it, it just. That kind of. You know how Reanimator completely ripped off the score to yeah. Psycho? I think, I think they're going for a similar vibe with this one. I think so. And I got in my notes Maud Adams, Clint Howard, Brian Yusner, Screaming Mad George, Special Effects. The names in these opening credits are already more exciting than the entire third film. That is very true. <laughs> um, and then, still wasting no time, we get a fucking sex scene. Uh, very, like, I'd say graphic sex scene. They, they don't leave much to the imagination. Uh, where two characters roll around naked whilst watching the news before the guy switches the channels for a bit of porn. Well, he's like, yeah, he's like holding her up as yeah. well. Yeah, probably going for it. Okay. The lucky girl is leading lady Kim Levitt. An aspiring journalist. She's a journalist, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, working for the Los Angeles Eye newspaper as a classified ads editor. <laughs> Anyone's going to get that reference. <laughs> Hopefully. She's a journalist, ladies and gentlemen. Kim Levitt is officially the best character in this entire franchise. Yes, that's very true. Um, she's a feminist icon. She is. And this film tries its best to be a feminist film. Doesn't always succeed, but it, it's trying, and that's that's a nice change. Um, when it tries part, I'm yeah. gonna get more into it. A uh, boss, Eli, seems to give all of the men in her office the breaks, including her boyfriend Hank, who she was just getting on with. And this is this is a really good storyline. The fact that she never gets you know the big breaks and everything. It's always the men yeah. in the office, and and this is what I mean. It's see, it's these scenes where it's like okay. Yeah, you're actually trying, which is, is nice to see. The guys in the office want to know where Hank has been and says, uh, and he says he's been trying at a new restaurant. And one of them, a fucking goon with glasses, is like, what's the special? Chicken a la Kim? Oh. When a woman is discovered dead on is the sidewalk. I, I think so. I mean, it's not an insult. You know, Kim's a very beautiful lady. Yeah. It's like Molly Ringwald. She does. Um, when a woman is discovered dead on the sidewalk, half burned into ashes in an apparent case of spontaneous human combustion, Kim is fuming at all of the men ignoring the story and decides to pursue it on her own without Eli's approval. Well, she's fuming because it's kind of given to Hank. Yeah. And he sort of like half-heartedly takes it on. Mm -hmm. Uh, but none of them actually seem that interested, particularly in the fact that a, a girl's life has been lost. Yeah. So she's absolutely fuming. And um, she says to, to her co-worker Janice, damn it, Janice, who needs men anyways? It's like, okay, this is the real deal. This bitch is the real deal. She's a strong, independent woman. She is. So she goes out and she starts by questioning Joe, a butcher who works at a meat store. Uh, and he gives us some nuts with his bloody hands. Yeah, he's a bit of an um, Asian stereotype, isn't yeah, he, unfortunately. He tells her that no one knew much about the fire girl, so this means that she could have been a hooker. Yeah, what do you think she was doing up there? Could have been a hooker, huh? Okay. <laughs> Next, uh, she bumps into Ricky, who tries fingering her coat before she crosses paths with Fema, played by Maud Adams. 
uh, a used bookstore proprietor, uh, proprietor who thinks Ricky should have been institutionalised and whose shop is in the building where the woman jumped from. Yeah, um, Clint Howard just kind of pokes her butt, Yeah, when she's she's going around the uh, bookstore. She's being Clint Howard. Just being Clint Howard. Um, yeah, Maud Adams, great actress. Don't know what went wrong here. Um, <laughs> I mean, even the actress who plays Kim, like, favourite character, but fucking hell. All of the performances in this film are very wooden. Yeah, it's kind of... Apart from Clint Howard, who's in a different film, clearly. Yeah, he's, as always, he's in, a he's in his film. own film. Uh, but it, it, I do feel like they smoked a bit of weed before <laughs> acting, um, and Kim absolutely, the actress playing Kim, uh, <laughs> she confuses emotion with volume. Yeah, she she gives us everything, <laughs> but not in a good way. <laughs> Very loud. Uh, as a gift, FEMA offers Kim a book on feminism and the occult named Initiation of the Virgin Goddess before giving her an invitation to a picnic and a kiss. Yeah, <laughs> FEMA's very handsy, isn't she? Is, she? yeah. Um, my favourite part was when uh, Kim asks for a book on spontaneous combustion <laughs> and FEMA turns around and says, this doesn't happen to have anything to do with the woman from last night. <laughs> Like, what, the woman who <laughs> spontaneously, spontaneously combusted, <laughs> the woman who fell from your roof on fire, um, maybe, maybe it has something to do with that. Fuma takes Kim to the top of the roof where the girl jumped from. Um, honestly, I was nervous watching the scene. The cameraman was so fucking shaky whilst, uh, whilst you Kim's on the roof. Off, I genuinely... kept it in. <laughs> um, she starts walking on the edge and Ricky watches her. Ricky sticks his head in a pipe, <laughs> pulls out a big slug, and waves it in Kim's face. She's like, ew, and leaves. Yeah. <laughs> this is the part when you're like, oh, what? what, what what's happening? Because the, the spontaneous combustion, I mean, I'm sure there's been an episode of Murder, she wrote, where they believe someone spontaneously combusted, and it turned out someone murdered them. That's where I thought this was going. And then he just pulls out this massive bug from a pipe. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what film's this? And, and he looks so fucking ridiculous waving it at the camera as yes. well. He really does. <laughs> On Christmas Eve, Kim gets home, finds bugs in the sink and her food, and notices a picture in Initiation of the Virgin Goddess resembles her spaghetti. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. Uh, she spends the evening with Hank's family. Yeah, Hank's fuming because she's late. She wasn't going to join him at his family's home. Um, but because her dinner gets ruined by cockroaches, then she does join him for Christmas Eve, whatever it is. So. Yeah. Because he says, dinner's ready, dinner's ready. Well, dinner's ready, why aren't we here? And if she gets there, she's just offered, like, crackers. So yeah. I, don't, I don't understand, is uh, dinner ready or not? Crackers and a really shit joke from Hank's father who thinks he's the king of banter. He's like, you know where this beer goes? Neither do I. I'm, okay, I'm good for you, hon. Uh, Hank's father is fucking disgusted by the fact that Kim is Jewish and thinks women were born from the rib of man just to have a place in the family home. Yeah, so I just got Hank's dad is a cunt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, pretty much. He's very much the stereotype. Uh, let's be honest, uh, a Trump supporter yeah, stereotype. The absolute right wing stereotype. Yeah. Um, Hank tells Kim. Well, he's more disgusted by so. They they say that um, Kim is Jewish, mm. but Kim herself says, "Well, she's not actually that religious." Yeah. Um, and he seemed more disgusted by that. By yeah. Not being religious. He, yeah. He and then he says about how it's bullshit that there's different holidays and whatever. Yeah. Well, yeah. She explains that a lot of them just tend to have the same holidays around the same time, um, because they're all sort of derived from the same sort of. Backstory, mm-hmm. um, and he's like, that's, that's, that's not right. Yeah, Hank, Hank tells Kim to take his anti-Semitic and misogynistic father so seriously. He then tries getting on with her, and she is fucking, t- she is fuming. She is, she really is fuming on another level. So she tells him about himself. Uh, he tells her she's gonna lose her job with that attitude, and she says, "Oh yeah, well fuck the attitude, fuck the job, and fuck you." And obviously we're all here like, yeah, let's get it, girl. Later at her apartment, Kim begins reading the book FEMA gave to her and finds a chapter on the fire of Lilith, depicting a woman engulfed in flames. She finds more bugs and a spaghetti comes to life. (laughs) A gigantic bug appears on her wall and she throws up a smaller bug into the toilet along with some blood before passing out. And Screaming Mad George has done it yet again. Uh, amazing the effects, effects are really good I mean really this is a good. fucking straight to video film yeah you know and, and for something like that you would never expect practical effects as good as this and the next no. one yeah he does a real good job the next day Janice yeah, yeah the next day Janice shows up and uh, sorting out Kim's apartment and uh, she informs her that Eli was pissed about her not showing up for work to which Kim replies Boys will be boys. <laughs> yeah, seemingly, I was a little confused, but seemingly she missed work the previous day. Yeah. Um, I'm also really confused. Well, this should be Christmas Day. This should be Christmas Day, <laughs> but I don't think it is. No. Um, it's a weird Christmas Day. A um, slight sort of continuity issue there, but um, yeah, see, uh, seemingly, maybe it is Christmas Day. But they're still working. Yeah, for a new. Oh, do you have newspapers on Christmas Day? Well, I mean, the the most bizarre thing here is the fact that they're out having a picnic. Like Kim arrives at on the, Christmas Day. Yeah, yeah. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't have that. Kim arrives at the Hun picnic that Fema has invited her to, where she meets Catherine Harrison, a self-described old crone, um, crony, old crone, crony, whatever. Crone, she says. Uh, right. And the young dance teacher Jane Yana, Yanana. Um, they all drink wine. Having a having a kiki, um, Kim is fucking pissed out of her face after one sip. Yeah, and she just shouts every word. Content. She just, she shouts. Yeah, it is. She shouts every word she says. She asks about the fire girl. Uh, Catherine didn't hear a thing, and Jane thinks she just wasn't strong enough. They tell her about Lilith, Adam's first wife, and the spirit of all that crawls. <gasps> oh. Kim starts giving them all the problems. Ah, oh, yeah, well, that work. Oh, all those men getting the jobs. I did this sermon all by myself. And the young dance teacher's like, good for you. 
She hasn't written a word. She's a journalist. <laughs> she hasn't written a fucking word. So then I went and saw Scylla Black and she caught me out being a journalist. Oh, <laughs> FEMA gives her another kiss. A bit more full on this yeah, time. Yeah, she gives a little peck on the lips this time. Yeah, so, oh, so glad you came. Um, she then starts reaching out to branches and Hank comes to collect her because Eli's having a shit fit. So well, then, the branches have formed a kind of face, haven't yeah. they? And then she sobers up. <laughs> yeah, essentially, yeah. At the office, <laughs> Eli, instead of being angry about Kim missing work, lets her officially have the uh, spontaneous combustion story. Kim can't figure out how Janice knew where she was to tell Hank where to find her. Dun, dun, dun. Kim, dressed like an absolute fashion icon, in the most 90s outfit and a very stylish hat, She's definitely giving Molly Ringwald <laughs> She and Hank go to the roof uh, of the incident. She gives him a kiss and decides to forgive him. Boo. Oh, I don't know. Hank did help her out getting another spontaneous combustion story. Yeah, but the whole thing is she doesn't need a man to do stuff like that. She'll yeah, but it's, about, but, it's, but it's about learning, isn't it? So he, he understood that his behaviour wasn't acceptable and learned from it. <laughs> That's how we all have to do it. <laughs> Well, I'm not sorry for her, I like Hank. <laughs> Kim decides to visit Fema's apartment to ask her more questions. And Fema serves her a cup of tea, which makes Kim nauseated. Fema tells Kim of her daughter Lilith before saying, I bet you and Hank have great sex. Yeah. And when it's over, I bet you feel like something's missing. <laughs> Fema suggests that men are parasitic and Kim needs to get rid of the parasite to thrive. It's true. Yeah. Fema offers her a date uh, which turns into a bug and demands that Kim eats it uh, yeah date is in the food which she does which causes her to have flashbacks to the rest of the film and soon after she passes out to start a bizarre series of events this is a very bizarre series of events <laughs> she wakes up surrounded by Jane Fema Catherine and Lee new whoever girl. the fuck Lee is I have no idea I just, yeah new girl Lee I'm assuming only in the credits that she referred to as Lee. Yeah, I mean, they, they switch around the court a few times, don't they? Yeah, just she wakes up and just random people. It's only Fema and Catherine who are the regulars. Yeah, they perform a ritual on Kim. Uh, Ricky and Fema slice open a live rat over her and insult, uh, insult, insert a giant lava into Kim's vagina... <laughs> With some disgustingly great practical effects of yeah. it going through her stomach. Yes. It emerges from her mouth as a full-grown giant multi-segmented roach. Uh, she vomits the creature out. Ricky slices the creature in half and it drips uh, its insides onto Kim's face. Yeah. This is very... <laughs> I think this is very much like the filmmakers being like... What can we do? It doesn't have to make any sense. It's just what can we do? Um, well, we can do a large cockroach. Okay, great. Well, can we cut it in half and have squirting shit out of it? Like, yeah, we can do that as well. Oh, okay, brilliant. Just add that. Just have that. Yeah, great. <laughs> it, yeah, it's ridiculous, but I, I do uh, I, I do love how weird it goes. Yes. Yeah. Trying something new, at least. Yeah. And it's well executed. Again, the special effects, really good. Kim wakes up later, fully dressed, still in Fema's apartment. 
Um, and she asks Fima what she wants from her, to which she says, I want my daughter back. So she rushes home, terrified, and finds Hank, who was able to calm her after she slams him around for a bit, shoves some papers down the toilet, and smashes up a bathroom mirror. Yeah. Then they decide to get it off. Well, Kim gets a bit horny, um, because she thinks Hank looks like a little boy in his shirt and pants. Uh, and she wishes he hadn't woken up, um, because she wanted to touch him in his sleep and make him hard, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Strange dialogue. Um, yeah, I don't think this is even a, anything to do with the ritual or anything. I mean, she's just really horny. <laughs> Maybe. Ricky then enters the apartment... Turns on the TV to watch Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. <laughs> yeah, whilst Hank and Kim are getting it on yeah. the bed, he's sat at the end of the bed watching uh, the worst film. <laughs> <laughs> it's the scene, uh, the Santa's Grotto scene, the dream sequence at the start of the film, and he just turns around to the both of them and he's like, Santa Claus killer. <laughs> yeah. uh, he then has a fight with Hank, which leads to him biting Hank's foot and stabbing him to death. Kim manages to answer her ring and phone during the fight and screams for Janice to help her. Ricky captures Kim and binds her. Janice arrives, but doesn't help Kim. <gasps> Instead, she tells Ricky off for the mess and tells him to take Kim straight <gasps> to FEMA. Dun, dun. Another member to the uh, ever-growing call. Yes. And yeah, another bizarre series of events. Ricky locks Kim in a sweaty meat locker at a meat shop next door to FEMA's bookstore, where she passes out again. And this is very much society. The sweatiness of this... uh... Yeah. Yeah. When she awakens, she is surrounded by the entire cult who are lubing up Ricky's body. Yes. You get to witness naked Clint Howard being lubed up. Yes. <laughs> In case you ever wanted to see that. He's also wearing a very phallic mask, reminiscent of a clockwork orange. Yeah, absolutely taken straight from it. Uh, and then he sexually assaults Kim whilst wearing this mask. Yes. Uh, she reawakens alone in the meat locker. Her fingers bind themselves together in a knot. Then she experiences indescribable, incredible pain as she leaks bug juice from her vagina and her legs bind together into an insect-like tail. Yeah. Seriously. Again, great special effects. Yeah. Um, I don't really know what else to say. (laughs) I don't, because I'm not sure how much of it, like, ties back to... You know, the ideas running through the film. Like, if, you know, binding fingers is something to do with feminism, Mm. then we could... But I don't think it is. I think it's literally, here's a cool thing that we can do. (laughs) And it looks great, but it doesn't really mean much. Um, Good old Hank's also in there, isn't he? Yeah, he's... uh, Hanging by the nipples. Yeah, from chains from the ceiling. Because Hellraiser was popular back then. Yes, that's very true. And Screaming Mad George, I believe, had some involvement with uh, Hellraiser 3. Um, she awakens... She, she passes out after seeing that. And she awakens in the meat locker as Joe, from earlier on The Butcher, opens the door. He frees her legs from a brittle cocoon-like substance and covers her as best as he can. Joe tells her that she has been initiated and that she should go. Uh, so she casually goes down to the bookstore... 
You're very casually, actually. She's not as fuming as uh, you probably would expect. No, FEMA calls her Lily. This helps Kim realise that Lily the Fire Girl was FEMA's daughter. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. FEMA and Catherine tell Kim that she'll now be free of parasitic men, uh, but to complete her initiation, she has to kidnap Hank's teenage brother, Lonnie, uh, played by Brian Yuzna's son, by the way, Conan Yuzna, uh, which she refuses to do and storms out of the bookstore. Yeah. I'm not sure about this whole you have to kill. Out of nowhere, like, yeah. (laughs) It's basically like, okay, yeah, I've got my son in this film. I want to uh, give him a bit of a bigger role. Uh, (laughs) How can I do this? Yeah, yes, that's true, actually. Kim brings a policeman. Oh, we need a reason to kill the anti Semitic bastard. (laughs) Kim brings a policeman, Detective Burt, to her apartment. There, everything is spotless and there's no trace of Hank's body, so he doesn't believe her. Yeah, he does um, find the many pills in her uh, yeah. medicine cabinet, though. It's a montage of uh, of men being shit to her, to uh, drive her to her decision to go along with it. Because um, yeah, then she goes to the office Christmas party. Eli claims that Hank is away on assignment. She's like, yeah, well, that's fucking not true, is it? And then the obnoxious glasses guy <laughs> goes up to her and is like, ho, 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 if it isn't the Virgin Mary... So she squashes a cup in his face. Yeah. <laughs> Janice is there. <laughs> yes. And welcomes her to the family. So she throws a cup in her face and then storms out. Yeah, she's absolutely fuming again. Uh, she walks down onto the sidewalk. She notices Ricky following her and ducks into a motel room where there's some porn on the TV, followed by Fema telling her to get the boy. Yeah, on the TV. On the TV. <laughs> Her fingers begin to bend and her feet begin to get painfully hot. So she jumps into the shower, uh, but they still burst into tiny flames. Ricky enters the room and in pain, Kim agrees to kidnap Lonnie to complete the initiation. Yes. She had to go through all that to convince her. Kim lures uh, Lonnie out of the house. Ricky walks into Hank's house and Hank's father is repulsed by the sight of him. <laughs> oh, fuck, it's Clint Howard. <laughs> I know, yeah. He doesn't even look that bad. He just looks like Clint Howard, a little dirty. <laughs> Ricky murders Hank's parents by strangling them with Christmas lights and setting the house on fire. Yay. On the building roof, Kim is asked to stab Lonnie. Uh, <laughs> Catherine says, kill the man, become a whole woman. It's a fucking child. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But that's what um, Kim says. I can't do it, it's a child. Instead, she stabs Fema. In anger, Fema pulls the knife from her stomach, stabs Ricky and drags the knife up his chest. Yes. Uh, a giant lava feeds on Ricky as Kim's legs begin to get hot. Kim's hands knock themselves together once again and they burst into flames. <laughs> Kim then stabs her fused hands into Fema's wound uh, and it transfers the curse of Lilith to Fema, sets her on fire and she dies off the roof just as her daughter had. Yeah. Kim hugs Lonnie, tells him it's all over now, whilst the court watch Fema's body burn. The court could not give a shit. Because it's, it's not even the same people apart from Catherine. The other two. The dance teacher's name, never, is she? No, no, that wasn't the dance teacher. 
Um, yeah, nothing's really explained about how the curse of Lilith can get transferred no. like that. Nothing's really explained in great detail about who Lilith was and no. why she was... Why she died, like who she was, why she was, what she was. Yeah, so there's a lot of questions left to be answered. Entire final sequence is just fucking nonsense. It is (laughs) like a random shit happening. It really, it it genuinely is, and like I said, I think they just sort of threw things together. So this would be cool. This would be cool. This would be cool. But in the, you know, grand scheme of things, it doesn't necessarily make any sense. But... But... Still the third best film in the franchise. It's an enjoyable film. You know, it's ridiculous. It's over the top. If you can forgive the nonsensical parts, Mm. um, then, you know... We can watch nonsensical films, um, but I don't think this was meant to be a nonsensical film because there was a plot and reveals and a mystery to it if you know what I mean yeah so it did leave a lot of questions unanswered um I thought it would have had a greater message on gender than it did gender equality and feminism yeah it, it, it was good to see it trying but it didn't always succeed no I found it, I found it strange that in ultimately the bad guys were all women yeah I feel like they kind of wanted that to be a, uh, you know, moral questions and whatnot, but... Maybe. Because of the execution being messy, it didn't really work out that no. way. But the effects, really good. Um, Likeable lead yeah. character. Um, batshit crazy premise and execution. Mm-hmm. I, I would recommend watching it, yeah. absolutely. For cool to do at Christmas. Yeah, right? most festive moment is actually Clint Howard watching Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 on TV. Yeah, well, I put festive <laughs> moment with Hank's dad getting strangled by the Christmas tree lights. <laughs> yes. Uh, most laughable moment, I've just got every Clint Howard scene apart from when he's raping someone. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, every every other scene with Clint Howard is just, just Clint Howard. When he's waving funny. that lava in <laughs> yeah. the, into the camera, like, into her face. Um, and it's Clint Howard's across the board for me because I've got best kill Clint Howard as well. Yes, yeah, I agree with that one. Yeah, knife up the chest and then being fed on by lava. Yeah. What do you want? Well, that was Silent Night, Deadly Night 4. And now for our final film for this episode, Silent Night, Deadly Night 5, The Toy Maker from 1991. Directed by Martin uh who directed Daddy's Girl, Man of Her Dreams and Living in Fear. No idea. Do you think that's all the same franchise? Daddy's Girl, uh, The Man of Daddy Girl's Dreams, uh, Living in Fear. I hope not. I certainly <laughs> hope not. I don't like that. Uh, he's also the script supervisor on all of Tarantino's films. Nice. Um, he's also on Friday the 13th, 1 and 2, Silent Madness, Deadly Blessing, oh. Red Dragon, Dumb and Dumber, X-Men 3, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, so, big name. Oh, wow. Big name. Budget of $250,000. And it goes a long way. It does, actually. Oh, wow. Straight to video again. And the tagline is, he's home, but he's not alone. Oh. Why? This is not a Home Alone ripoff. Not even close. <laughs> 
I suppose it's got a kid in danger, oh isn't it? Oh, my God. <laughs> Only two bits of trivia for this one. <laughs> a great bit of trivia. Mickey Rooney, um, everyone's favourite cultural appropriator, Mickey Rooney, uh, wrote a letter of protest against the first Silent Night, Deadly Night, stating that the scum who made it should be run out of town for having sullied the sk- sacredness of Christmas. Yeah, he's co-starring in this film, uh, in the gory horror series, in a scene where he dresses as Santa Claus. Yes. What uh, a fucking moron. Mr. Yunioshi himself. Yeah. Um, absolutely backtrack. Why would he backtrack like it's that? It's so stupid. It's so stupid. Like, he was... Uh, the whole protest against Silent Night Deadly Night, he was the most well-known thing about it because he was a big name. Yeah. You know, he was a big actor protesting against it because it ruins his, what he perceives to be, you know, the true spirit of Christmas or whatever. Well, he made his name in family-friendly films. Yeah. So he was Andy Hardy um, for many years, and that's how, you know, he was a child actor. They were very family-orientated films. Um, I can understand that, but in 84, I don't know what the fuck he was doing. Um, he can't judge anyone after what he did in Breakfast at Tiffany's. No, exactly. Um, but for him to backtrack... Yeah. And for him to not be embarrassed by... That, I know! I don't know what to call him out. Uh, excuse me, mate. Didn't Weren't you the one who was, like, bitching, like... About, like, pull up your receipts. Yeah. Like... Absolutely you know, You know on Housewives, when, during the reunion, they say, I never said that, I never yeah. said that, and then they bring up the receipts, and they did say it. <laughs> was it not one of those moments? No, apparently not. Where it's... was, uh, where was Monique with her binder? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good old Mickey Rooney. Massive hypocrite. The building used for external shots of Sarah's workplace is the headquarters of the now-defunct Live Home Video the company that originally released this movie on VHS in North America. And that's as interesting as the trivia's going to get. That's all i got. Um, yeah, so... Well, something that's interesting is um, Usner is back as a producer. Yeah, writer and producer. Um, writer and producer. Screaming Mad George is back on practical effects mm. and whatnot. Um, it definitely shows. Yeah. Brian Usner's son's back. He gets one of the best scenes in the film. Um, is that his son? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh. Lonnie. That's what I said. Remember we were talking about the last film? Oh! It's the same character. <laughs> it's the same character. Fucking hell. Okay, we watched, we've watched all five films back, practically back to back. There was a, a, a sleep in between. I like the connection in this film. I like the connection to, in to this four. film. It's, um... Questionable. Oh my god! When because I was reading in the, the the Wikipedia thing and it said adopt a son. Well, when does she adopt a son? Yeah, I didn't realize it's Lonnie. She she adopted the son that she kidnapped. Uh, we'll get to that soon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, an elderly toy. <laughs> How that worked out. Elderly toy maker and his son make killer toys designed to kill their customers. Children. That's a spoiler. I don't know. Yeah. Um, is that how it was advertised? That's the pre- official premise. That's a spoiler. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is definitely hot off the heels of Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, Robots, 
um, things appealing to children to kill children. Oh, okay. You know, uh, that, Dolls, Child's Play, Puppet Master. Puppet Master? Puppet Master. Demonic Toys. Um, Demonic Toys? You know, this is very much coming very, off the back of very that. very much. Yeah. Uh, Dolly Dearest, was that released by this point? Oh, was God. It after? Uh, this is very much... Really, yeah, that's a niche reference. <laughs> very, much, very much going for that. Um, but it feels different. It does. It is like... This is more Small Soldiers, and Small Soldiers was released way after. Um, but it feels like a horror Small Soldiers. I feel like out of all the sequels, this is the one that didn't need the... Silent Night, Deadly yeah. Night. This could have been its own film. Yeah. And potentially franchise. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought this was better than Puppet Master. Yeah. And Puppet Master, Lord knows how many fucking films have been made of that. Mm. I, in terms of the original Puppet Master, I think this is better. Yeah, I, I thought it was just as good as Dolls. I thought almost as good as the first Silent Night, Deadly Night. This is definitely the second best one in the franchise. Yeah, and absolutely. It, and I think it, it gets a bad rep because of the Silent Night, Deadly Night name being on it. And potentially, because obviously you think, oh, we've got the fifth one, director video, mm. it's going to be shit. If they just called this the Toy Maker, yeah. I think it would have got way more attention. And, you know, Mickey Rooney really makes the film what it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The performances are yeah, better. The performances are, are better in this are, one than the last actually, one. Yeah, actually. But it's not down to Mickey Rooney. No, he, he hams it up. He hams it up. Uh, late one night in December, a young boy named Derek Quinn hears the doorbell ringing whilst his parents are having saucy sex. Because, uh, like the last one, uh, you know, not a lot's left to the imagination. Yeah. Um, for once, we start a, a slasher film where a child witnesses... Well, <laughs> The parents having sex and it doesn't drive them completely no. insane. <laughs> also, these these two films completely go against type, um, especially when they were released in the early nineties, uh, with the fact that our final girls for both films start the film by having sex. Yeah, that is very true. That is very true. And and judging by the way they're acting, good sex at that. Yeah. By all accounts, they're much older than the average final girl. Yeah, but still, still, it's yeah. it's you know. It's a horror film, early 90s, coming off the 80s. Yeah, get a good scene too. You'd expect them to be dead by the halfway point. You would. Um, He goes downstairs and finds a Christmas present that's been addressed to him on the porch. His father, Tom, with his big airy chest on display and uh, his uh, fancy chain on the go, reprimands him. In Tom Jones' realness. (laughs) Yeah. He reprimands him for being up so late and opening the door, sending him off to bed. Instead, Derek watches from the stairs as his curious father opens the gift, whilst we, the audience, get to see his cock for his people. (laughs) We were a little concerned it was maybe like a wet patch from not giving it enough shakes after a a number one. Um, But yeah, it turns out his pyjamas just have some random hole in the front. Easy access. Easy, Easy access. Yeah. Um, you know, we've all heard the Carl Richards story. Maybe it's the same situation. Maybe. Oh, oh from Girl's Trip. <laughs> yeah, no one's seen that yet. No one's going to get that. <laughs> if anyone's watching Girl's Trip, they'll know. Got to stop this or we're going to turn into a Housewives fucking podcast. <laughs> we already have. 
Uh, finding the musical orb shaped like Santa Claus in the box, he activates it, causing it to strangle him <gasps> with retractable cords. As Tom struggles, he slips and falls onto a fireplace poker, his impaled body being found by his wife Sarah a few moments later. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the start of the film. Before the opening credits. So it's not the shagging that fucks him um, up. No. For Derek, it's seeing his dad being... Uh... Impaled. Impaled with a fireplace poker. Second thing entering something that he's seen that evening. There we go. Um, His dad was a bit forceful, but he did make a valid point. It's like, it is the middle of the night. You probably shouldn't be opening the door. Yeah. And then he left the fucking door open, mm-hmm. unlocked. So he did have a valid point, but he died anyway. We get the opening credits. Uh, again, another great score. Uh, this time we get to see parts of toys under a dark red light for the opening credits. And then one of them... That at the end of the credits, their eyes light green. Yeah, yeah, it was it was better than any um, sort of vertigo ripoff. <laughs> it's two weeks later, and Sarah wakes up to the sound of Tom saying "ow" in her dreams. <laughs> this she? Yeah, no, like she's sleeping, and you hear "ow," and then she wakes oh, up. Yeah, 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 it's true. Yeah, <laughs> I think he said more than that when he was impaled. Like yeah. "ow," <laughs> he didn't stub his toe. Oh no. <laughs> Derek is watching the Rambo animated series. <laughs> is that what that was? Why the fuck? And we were just saying this yesterday. The 90s are a fucking weird time. Oh, uh, like, yeah. Rambo, the animated series. What the fuck? I mean, Robocop got an animated <laughs> Toxic series. Avenger. Toxic Avenger. Avenger got an animated series. It, it, All these, like, violent films. I suppose maybe the, there wasn't... Well, no, it was the VHL. It's the age of the VHS. Of course kids would yeah. be... They'd want to watch First Blood. Yeah. You know, after... Like, Rambo is my favourite cartoon. <laughs> you know, oh, is it based on a film? Should we watch the film? Oh, it's about a fucking Vietnam War veteran. Like, oh. <laughs> like, shooting people. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah. Think, surely isn't that what the cartoon's about? Well, yeah. I mean, what else is it going to be about? His mum brings him breakfast and he hasn't spoken since his father's death. Two weeks ago. Yes, he hasn't spoken for two weeks. Uh, Kim and Lonnie show up. So yeah, okay. Lonnie's been adopted by Kim. Yes. The person who fucking kidnapped him. Yes. Did social services not do any checks? Like, okay, how do you know this woman? Ah, oh, she kidnapped me. Fucked yeah. my brother and kidnapped me. Yeah, so literally Kim is the reason why he's an orphan. Yeah. And the reason why his brother is dead. <laughs> if Kim had not been, you know, trying to get her, like, journalist story, then they all would have still been alive. Yeah. It's as simple as that. <laughs> but, you know, social services still found it fit to let her adopt him. Yeah. Um, he dresses like a little twat in this film. Um, and he's got a right attitude on him. Sarah tells he Kim, he, he really, he does talk like a, ri- a white rapper, yeah. and he does think he's Vanilla Ice. Call as Ice, was it released this year? I think so. It must have been big at the time. This is definitely post... Uh... Ice Ice Baby. Ice Ice Baby. Sarah tells Kim how she's going to take Derek to Petto's t- Toy Store. Um, Lonnie says, nah, don't take him there. He ain't got shit at that store. Yeah. And Kim's like, you shut the fuck up, you little bastard. Fucking kill more of your family if you carry on. Um, Petto and Pino, please explain. In what sense? 
why we have characters called Peto and Pino. So Peto <laughs> and Pino are a very on the nose reference to Pinocchio. So Geppetto mm-hmm. and Pinocchio. Yeah. So if you know that going into this, you know exactly where this is going. Yeah, and this is yeah because his full name is Joe Petto, <laughs> Joe Petto, and Pino, um, which is kind of a, again like a spoiler. It is, but would you when you started this film, would you really think to yourself, "Oh no, he's absolutely a fucking robot." Like, yeah, actually... absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's that, it's like, but it kind of like gives away the the plot. Yeah. <laughs> um, Derek is triggered by scenes. So, sorry, it's just really. <laughs> like, yeah, why would they do that? I'm thinking about it. Like, why actually would they do that? Derek is triggered by seeing an advertisement on TV for the toy that killed his dad. Noah Adams, a weird guy, is watching the house. Yeah. Like a weirdo. <laughs> yes. Um, Sarah calls Pino a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> now, th- again, this is another thing that's sort of like, oh, okay. Because Mickey Rooney was 71 yeah. when this film was made and looked every second <laughs> of it. Um, so in your head, you're like, grandfather would have made more sense. Yeah. Um, but like, father was like, okay, again, something's really iffy there. <laughs> yeah, she takes Derek to... Uh... Joe Petto's toy store, obviously played by Mickey Rooney, and his odd son Pino, uh, who also owns the store, not realizing they've been followed by Noah. Pino uh, jumps out and scares them with a mask on. Yeah. Pino, who's definitely not a teenager. Definitely not a teenager. Um, Joe says, How's the little boy? And uh, Sarah's like, No, he's not so good. He's like, Oh, what's the matter? His yeah. fucking father was killed two weeks ago and he witnessed it, you fucking moron. He watched his father be murdered two weeks ago. <laughs> By a fucking toy! You heartless creature. <laughs> like, why would you not have any, you know, sort of empathy or, or sympathy? <laughs> oh, wait, because you're the one who did it, bitch. <laughs> After Derek rejects all the toys, Joe shows him... Um, and one that La- that Pino shows him called Larry the Lav. Um, yeah, by the way, Larry the Lav is absolutely a toy version of the Lav from uh, uh, Silent Night, Dead Night 4. Yeah, there's definitely a connection there, isn't there? Um, he and his mother leave, because he's, he's not interested in any of it, not even the Lava. Lav, Lava. Lava. Um, Lava, Lava. Prompting Joe to begin angrily yelling at Pino, belittling him and blaming him for all the store's recent failures. And he, Mickey Rooney's definitely taking all his anger out on poor Pino. Like, he's fucking fuming. He's hamming it up to the extreme. Yeah, he's like, I've had to go back on my word to be in this film. <laughs> I wrote a strongly worded letter. <laughs> About the and spirit now of I'm Christmas. here in part five. This is all your fault. Whilst running from his father, Pino bumps into Noah and drops the lava toy, which Noah picks up and buys along with some other toys. Noah's in a rush and tells Joe to hurry things up at the till and drops a newspaper cut out about Tom's death on his way out. Yes, that is what we like to call a red herring. <laughs> <laughs> at his home, Noah begins taking apart the toys he brought from Joe, 
where he's confronted by his angry landlord, Harold, who greets him by saying, you're out of here, brother. <laughs> he does, he does. Um, not played by Hulk Hogan. No. Um, yeah, so we we see... Um, what's his name? What the fuck is this guy's name? Noah. Noah. He's messing about with the toys. That's yeah. what we like to call a red herring. <laughs> <laughs> While driving home, Harold is killed when the Larry the Lava crawls into his mouth and bursts out his eye, causing his car to crash and explode. Okay, you didn't give a bizarre series of events warning, and I think that very much deserved one. Do you think that was a bizarre series of yes, events? Yes, because the fact that Noah gave Harold the fucking Larry the Lava, knowing what it does, because he can't afford his rent... He practically killed his landlord. But how do we know he knows what it... Because he explains later on he knows what's going on with the toys. But he explains that he thinks he knows what's... But when he checks them, he doesn't find anything He, he massively knows. iffy. He's like, do you know what? Okay, it's a 50-50 chance. Gary, Gary, that's what we call slightly bad writing. Okay, thank you, thank you. <laughs> But either way... Because they want to keep this a mystery, even though IMDb completely ruins. <laughs> like, seriously. But it's all over a one-day extension. It gives them Larry. You're, like, you're meant to, for the pretty much 75% of this film, you're meant to think that Noah is the killer. Yeah. Whereas that's completely spoiled in the synopsis. Mm-hmm. So weird. <laughs> But yeah, it is a, it's a really great scene of uh, of Larry killing Harold. It's also called the, called the Toy Maker. Uh-huh. No one actually makes any of the toys. They well, just adjust them. He made one very human-looking toy. Oh, I suppose that's true. Would you consider it a toy? <laughs> well, well, it depends what goes on behind Kai's door. But yeah, yeah Larry uh, and, and Harold, that scene is great. Yeah, it is. It is funny. Well, you, we all know we love uh, a car crash uh, and a random, random explosion. explosion. Yeah, Harold plays with the toy whilst driving, which I'm surprised didn't cause the accident yeah. itself. Uh, he really should have been focusing on the road. Um, yeah, no, that's no, a good, good death scene. Nice, nice and gory. Yes. Just how Mickey Rooney likes it. Yeah. <laughs> Noah breaks into uh, Petto's and finds a picture of Joe and a lifeless-looking Pino in 1970. who is the same age as uh, as he is now. Ooh. Noah is dragged into the basement. Which he doesn't mention at all. No. Like, we notice it because yeah. he turns it around and says 1970. We're like, oh, Pino looks exactly the same. <laughs> um, but he doesn't mention that. He doesn't go, ooh... He doesn't no. know, like, n- nothing. Well, then he's dragged into the basement by Pino, but manages to get away and escape. And again, that's just... Not really it's... dealt with either. <laughs> like, we're still... Continuing on, we're still meant to think that Noah is the killer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, okay. The next day, Sarah takes Derek to see Santa, who is portrayed by Noah, who takes his friend Ricky, played again by Clint Howard's yes. shift, uh, at the mall, finding another gift on the porch on the way out. Yeah, <laughs> more of a cameo in this film, isn't yeah. it, really? Yeah, he, um, he, he's just there to dress as Santa. And I mean, if that doesn't get you in a festive spirit, then... Well, there's three Santas, isn't there? Yeah. Um, which kind of ruins the surprise for the kids when they see three Santas walking about. <laughs> well, I thought that was the real Santa. Yes, there's another gift left for uh, Derek. 
again. Um, while Sarah and Derek are gone, Peter sneaks into their house using the key he had hidden years earlier when he and his father lived there. Yes. Yeah. Um, I find it weird. Well, I don't find it weird. But the fact that Sarah thought that taking um, Derek to Santa so he can reel off his wish list would help him speak again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's consumerism for you, isn't it? <laughs> He's get the oh kid witnessed his dad dying and hasn't spoken for two weeks, but I know, you want to tell Santa all about the gifts you want. No choice but to talk then. No choice but to talk, but you know, Derek don't. A sport brat called Brandy sits on Santa Noah's lap (laughs) and tells him how she doesn't believe in Santa, but just in case he does exist, she wants clothes, clothes, and more clothes. But if he doesn't have enough clothes. She wants a 10-speed bike, a new pair of earrings, a new watch, a pair of sunglasses, a VCR, a yellow sun hat, and the tape of Bride of Reanimator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Yuznet was desperate to get those plugs in for Reanimator. I mean, you have funny. that, and there's a guy in the Santa queue wearing a Reanimator t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this, this girl is... Uh, she is... My spirit animal, um, when I was younger. Yeah, pretty much, to be fair. It was the kind of films you were watching at that age. Uh, Derek goes up to Santa Noah and he doesn't want to tell him what he wants, unsurprisingly. Noah tries to get him to whisper in his ear and refuses to let him go when Sarah tries to take him home. He punches his chair and Sarah takes him away. Okay, Noah, hunt. We, we all know what it's like to be awkward. But fucking hell, this isn't the way to deal with things. That's totally not the way You look like a fucking to... nonce. It does kind of feel like... Well, spoiler alert. But it turns out that Noah is Derek's real father by the end of the film. This is still not the way to go about <laughs> reconnecting with your long-lost family. Um, what it does help is make you look like the serial killer in a horror film. <laughs> Yeah, he even watched them drive away in his Santa's outfit. He does, yeah. Who's that for? That's clearly for our benefit. <laughs> when Sarah and Derek get home early, Kim pays them a visit and tells Sarah she saw someone in her house. Pino was hiding in a wardrobe and flees from the house. So Sarah is now fuming. Goes to uh, confront Joe about it and threatens to call the police. Joe explains that they used to live there but were forced out. And Pino keeps wanting to go back. Joe tells her he understands her being upset about Pino, to which she says, Understand this. If it happens again, I will call the police. Go on, Sarah. Go on, tell him. You tell him. Sarah decides to let Derek open the present dropped off earlier, and Derek refuses to touch it. (laughs) Even Derek alone... Is this not the point where he starts talking so he can tell... (laughs) I know, yeah. (laughs) Tell people that... In a very similar circumstances, his father was killed. Well, thank God he doesn't, because we get one of the best series of events in the film. <laughs> Leaving Derek alone, Sarah's visited by our queen, Kim, uh, and they have some girl talk, to which Kim tells Sarah, you wouldn't believe some of the stuff I've been through. And you're absolutely right, she wouldn't. <laughs> wasn't too long. Well, we know. But it's around Christmas time as well. You'd yeah. think she would be having uh, issues... With Christmas as a whole. Like, Lonnie acting the brat around Christmas. Is this when your whole family was <laughs> murdered? Uh, 
Yeah, Derek sneaks outside and throws a present in a garbage can where Lonnie, dressed as Vanilla Ice again, but like even more so, this is absolutely one of his outfits, uh, and hiding behind the tree for some reason, finds the, the, uh, the present. So he unwraps it and finds roller skates to help nice. him be even more cool. Joe... Luckily, he's a really great skater as well. Oh, don't. Elsewhere, first of all, before we get to that, Joe, in a drunken rage, begins beating Pino, accidentally killing him by knocking him down some steps. Oh, no. Well, in honour of all Japanese people, Pino did get a couple of good smacks in it, it on did, Mickey Rooney. Um, yeah, a teenage couple approach Lonnie... And start taunting him. And we get the best line of dialogue of all time. Where the boyfriend says, I eat little shits like you for breakfast. It's why my shit smells so bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who the fuck thinks of that? Like, it's absolutely a line that should be in sleepaway camp. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> uh, the couple kiss and Lonnie skates off. Are they the same couple from later on? Married different books? Yes, okay. they are, yeah. Derek is watching Clint Howard in Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, watching Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 on TV. I mean, can you get more meta than that? I know, right? And before Scream, and before A New Nightmare. Ooh. So he's watching it in his mum's bedroom, and she asks him to try sleeping in his own bed again. Whilst using the skates, Lonnie <laughs> skates into Meredith and Buck whilst they're making out, and is then... <laughs> is then hit by a car and left hospitalised and bandaged up when rockets hid him within the skates, causing him to lose control. And this scene goes on for ages and it is fucking fantastic. It's... So funny. It's pure, like... Um... What's the... It's... I wouldn't... I'm, I want to say Charlie Chaplin, but... It's <laughs> a little too highbrow. Um... Uh, what says some of us do have them? It's it's like a kids TV show slapstick. Yeah, it's like it, whoa. It's like doing spins it's and everything. Like, whoa. It, it's so funny, so funny. And then when it cuts from him being run over to him with his face all bandaged up, it's it's even funnier. It it is hilarious. The funny thing, the funny, what I found funny is that the skates don't explode. No. So, the idea is that whoever receives the skates can skate. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore, them going out of control would put them in danger. You say that. I mean, the skates do control him. So, all you have to do is put them on, really. But what if he just, like, fell? Well, they're strong enough to take control of him. Chris, they're fucking killer roller skates. Why are you questioning this? Jesus Christ. I know it's a hilarious scene, but this is what we do. I'm sorry, if you, if you not listen to the But they're killer roller skates. This is what I do. I overanalyze <laughs> these things. I mean, it gave us one of the best Usually with hilarious results. <laughs> well, meanwhile, Derek finds the toy that killed his dad in his bedroom and smashes it up with a baseball bat. Derek, don't bother. We're watching Lani fucking spin around on roller skates. That's, that's what we want to see. I did find it strange that he they kept the toy. I know, yeah. Like, <laughs> just why would he have like thrown it out earlier, <laughs> or smashed it up earlier? Because it is the toy that did kill your father. Yeah, 
While Sarah visits Lonnie and Kim at the hospital, Kim shows Sarah the roller skates and Derek is visited by Noah, who is shooed away by the babysitter Meredith who tells Noah where to find Sarah when Noah keeps badgering her from outside. Literally, he turns up and he's like, where does she work? And she's like, oh, okay, just down here. Uh, whoa, hang on a minute. <laughs> Leave us alone. She works here. Here's the postcode. <laughs> Take a left when you uh, reach the roundabout. I, I, this film gets so melodramatic at this point. It is so fucking funny. In the parking garage of Sarah's workplace, Noah, who was revealed to be Sarah's old boyfriend and Derek's real father, confronts her and the two get it on in the back of her car. <laughs> yeah, just, just stepping back a little bit. Um, when Noah gave Derek the, the gift, the wrapping paper said Derek it on it. <laughs> the wrapping paper was Derek, 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 Derek. Like, oh my God, where did you get that from? How many kids were called Derek in exactly. 1991? <laughs> there are plenty of bots <laughs> and Derek's apparently. Um, but yeah. This so whole the line delivery everything in this sequence is so fucking funny. Literally, so she starts running... When Noah appears, yeah, mm-hmm. and then essentially they just start snogging straight away. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, "Why did you run from me?" She's like, "I panic, I guess." <laughs> and then um, I wrote, "Sure, Jan, it's because she's in a fucking horror film. That's why she <laughs> ran away. There was no reason for her to have <laughs> ran away." And he's just like, "Oh, he's mine, isn't he? Oh, you could have told me. You weren't ready yet." You weren't ready. Oh, but I was ready. And it, it is literally like, it's so fucking It's great. like an episode of Hollyoaks. It is. At the Quinn house, Meredith and her boyfriend book of his tighty whiteies uh, are having sex in a child's bed. The tightiest and whiteiest <laughs> of underwear. Yeah, in a bizarre series of events. That getting on in, in Derek's bed. Um, this is very weird. This is like the bath at Granny's house. This is like <laughs> the bath at Granny's house. I just, it's inherently... Nancy. It, it really is. For them to get it on in a kid's bed, in a kid's room. But there's a sofa, like, come on. I heard it very strange. There is a sofa. They probably would have been better suited to the sofa because as far as they were concerned, Sarah was on her way back, mm-hmm. not getting her own in the boot of a car. <laughs> but Meredith even says, you know, she'll be back any second. Yeah. Um, They do at least 10 minutes of fucking foreplay. They do. Um... <laughs> It doesn't seem to be working out for him until something shows up. <laughs> Joe shows up, dressed as Santa. Yep, Mickey Rooney, dressed as Santa Claus. Yes. The face and the look of an hypocrite. Um, and he leaves a bunch of toys in Derek's room. <laughs> Such a bizarre series of events. Very bizarre, this one. Book gets a toy hand on his ass and starts trying to finger blast him. Which he really seems to be enjoying really more than the foreplay. Likes. Yeah, really enjoying that. The foreplay had been going on for ten minutes at that point, and that's when he started looking like he was into it. That's when he really enjoying it. All of the toys attack Meredith and Book, whilst Joe abducts Derek, taking him to the toy store. Meredith is, Meredith is shot twice, and another toy starts munching on her leg. Yeah, we were a bit nervous where that munching <laughs> was going to go, because she sat on the floor. We were like, oh God, don't do it. A toy car... With a circular saw, fucking decapitates book. Like his fucking robot wars. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So good. Such a great scene. It is. It's the kind of scene, I hate to go on, that Puppet Master should have had. Yes. Yeah. This is the kind of scene. 
Shortly before taking Sarah home, Noah tells her about Joe's past, saying he was arrested years earlier for booby-trapping toys he gave to children after his pregnant wife died in a car crash. Yeah, very strange that no one had heard that story. Yeah, I know, yeah. Like, like literally Noah is the only one who knew <laughs> that story. Pulling into the driveway, Sarah and Noah find a hysterical and bloody Meredith who tells them Book is dead and that Joe took Derek. What was she shot with then? Something from one of the toys. I have no idea. It can't have been a fucking bullet or she should have been dead. Yeah. She's like, she's hysterical, but also really quite physical as well. She's like flailing around and everything. Like, bitch, you've just been shot twice. Yeah. Um. I mean, I suppose it'd be toy bullets. Surprisingly so. low body count in this film, actually. I know, yeah. Thinking about it. I mean, they make it worthwhile when people do get killed. Yeah. Uh, but it could have been more. Yeah, well, I mean, Lonnie survives. Meredith survives. Mm-hmm. So Meredith... Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sarah rushes to the toy store, uh, followed by Noah, and starts looking around upstairs, arming herself with a knife. She means business. In the basement, Noah is attacked by Joe with a remote control plane and an acid squirting water pistol and is knocked out. <gasps> knocked out by acid. <laughs> I know, yeah, but, not, but not um, deformed in any way. Not burnt in any way. Hearing the noise, Sarah goes downstairs. Finds the toys and demasks the non-toy person to find Joe's dead body and tries to run, only to be stopped by the Joe dressed as Santa. Oh, I feel a big reveal. The imposter Joe fucking removes his face, showing robotic components underneath, and puts on another, revealing himself to be Pino. Yeah, but this is Pino with very plastic hair. Like, he had normal yeah. hair throughout the rest of the film, <laughs> just, like, slicked back. But in this one, it's, like, plastic, like, I, um, Woody from Toy Story. I could not believe this when I first watched this film. This is just fucking ridiculous on another level, but it works so well for how, for what the film's going for. Yeah. So stupid. Uh, Pina takes his Santa suit off, <laughs> revealing his uh, Ken doll body <laughs> with no dick. Um... And explains to Sarah that Joe created him to replace his own dead son, but he could never live up to his father's expectations, as he was not a real son and was continually broken and rebuilt by Joe in his drunken rages. He says, uh, my father could make anything, and then we have a pan down to this flat crotch, (laughs) and then panned up, well, almost anything. Pino goes uh, on to say that he wants... He couldn't have made a car. No. Like, he can, he made all these things. He made um, a free-thinking Santa ball that strangles people, <laughs> but he couldn't make a functioning fucking dick for right? his son. Gosh. Pino goes on to say that he wants Sarah to be his mother, which is why he sent killer toys to try and kill Derek. He then tries getting it on with her, um, whilst frantically shouting. We're all fucking saying this. Oh, so Joe (laughs) wasn't the killer. No, no, it was was only ever Pino. Yeah. Yeah, Joe just wanted a son. Yeah, Pino was Joe when he went to the house with the killer toys. Oh. But... Joe's dead. But if Joe could make anything, then Pino could make anything. Yeah. 
We would make himself a cop then. <laughs> yeah, it would have come handy for him in this situation. It would have really come in handy. Genuinely, in a... <laughs> if that's his big issue, is that his dad never made him a penis, but he's now killed his dad because he's learned everything he can from him. Get yourself together. <laughs> if that's the phrase I want. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I mean... What's more bizarre is this scene. Yeah, um, this is weird. He's just frantically shouting, I love you, mummy. <laughs> I love you, mummy. What's dry humping her to death? Yeah. With no penis. Uh, but she stabs him in the head of a screwdriver, causing him to begin malfunctioning. Grabbing the knife Sarah dropped earlier, Pino begins to try and stab Derek, whom he had placed in a large sack. But Sarah tells him that he can be her son and come home with them. Derek can speak again now uh, and jumps on Pino. Where... It's the shock of the crotchless uh, Pino <laughs> that shocked him back into talking again. Noah breaks into the room and starts fighting Pino, distracting him long enough for Sarah to halve him at the waist with an axe. Barely functioning, Pino cries for his father before grabbing Sarah's leg, causing her to stomp his head into pieces. As Sarah, Derek and Noah agree that these things are only toys, the eyes of one of Joe's partially assembled robots spark ominously like Pino and his creations. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Bizarre. Very bizarre film. Remember how at the end of 4 was just complete nonsense for the last five minutes? I mean, so was this, but it was organised nonsense. Like, it, it, it made sense. Yeah, it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, you had the big reveal um, of who the killer was. Yeah. Uh, in both senses of the word. Um, yeah, and it was Pino. Pino and Grisha. I mean, yeah, it's just such a, a an underrated killer toys horror film. Yeah, I mean... It's not rewriting the book. It's, you know, very much in keeping with that kind of film. But I, I think it does does it better. Yeah. I think it's enjoyable. I think the characters are likeable. I think the special effects are very good, especially for that budget as well. Um, it's funny. It's silly. It's campy. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention is that Pino hams it up uh-huh. at the end. I mean, ridiculously over-the-top performance. And that's the kind of thing that this film needs. Yeah. Something a bit more um, silly. Because it's a silly <clears throat> slasher film. Yeah, absolutely. Best one since the first film. Uh, and, and obviously better than the remake. Yeah, not the stiffest of competitions. But no. It means something that is, yeah, the second best of the series. Uh, most festive moment I've got seen Clint Howard in a Santa suit. I had Mickey Rooney dressed as a killer Santa. <laughs> Certainly got me in the festive spirit. Uh, most laughable moment was obviously Lonnie's killer roller skates and hospitalisation. Yeah, killer roller skates and the cockless reveal. <laughs> uh, and best kill, I got Harold the Landlord. Oh, I got Book. I yeah, got book. I, it could be either, really. Yeah. I mean, they're both really great. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, that is officially us done with the Silent Night, Deadly Night franchise. Right, you, Liz? Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, mine is one, five, four, remake, two and three. 
I completely agree. Actually, yeah. I do. That's in terms of what is and what isn't a good film. I mean, in terms of enjoyment, obviously, part two. Yeah, we watch part two every year because it's absolutely ridiculous. But it is a half-star film. Yeah. There's no doubt about um, it. it, it you know, Whereas part three is a half-star film. I'm talking letterbox speak here. Uh, half-star film because it's shit. Yeah. I would wa- I would not watch that again. No. No, I mean, you know, obviously we watch one or two every year. I think I'd add five to that now as well. Um, those are the most rewatchable ones for sure. Yeah, but we can't yeah. add too many films to the Christmas list. We'll be uh, starting it in November the first. We did this year. No, we didn't. We watched Running Christmas Bride in November. <laughs> yeah, we did. No, that was, I don't <laughs> feel like that was by choice. I think it was one of the. You know when you you're watching something on the TV and one of your parents comes in and you're like, "What's this crap?" And then they sit down and they end up watching it with you, like, "Oh." Did you enjoy that? No, it was shit. <laughs> like, you just sat there and watched the whole fucking thing. That is the point we're at in our lives. That is exactly <laughs> what we did with Runaway Christmas Bride. Uh, but yes, so that is Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, 4 and 5. Again, episodes 18 and 89 if you would like to listen to us discuss the other films. Let us know on social media, your rankings, which one's your favourite one. We are Horror Court Trash over on Facebook and Instagram, Horror Court Trash on Twitter. I'm Dead at Gaz92 on Letterboxd, Gazmo205 on Instagram, GazCruise92 on Twitter. I'm Chris Barker823 on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Uh, yeah, on my Letterboxd, I've been doing some festive lists. So uh, I've got a Bad Christmas Films ranked list. If anyone. If, it sounds, I mean, if you listen to our podcast, it's definitely your sort of thing going along. Um, <laughs> ranked from trash to piece to trash, of course. Rate for you and subscribe on uh, iTunes, like follow nothing else. Next week, we are continuing our Christmas season with something that is probably going to be a lot less enjoyable than Silent Night, Deadly Night 4 and 5. We're discussing Kirk Cameron's Saving Christmas, officially the lowest rated Christmas film on IMDb. Yes. Um, I'm excited. I've been wanting to watch this film for a very long time now. Um, and I think it's going to be... A disaster. Prime for a massive amount of discussion. Yeah. Yeah. So... no one religious listens. Uh, no, no. Because <laughs> they might not like it. <laughs> so we'll be back same time, same place next week. Bye.